Good morning, Spanish River. Hey, I want to jump right into the sermon, but before I do, let me say this. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the way you've uh, resourced and enabled so many of us throughout the globe to plant gospel-centered churches on mission for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Because of people like you, because of your generosity, many are being reached, discipled, and baptized uh, in the name of Christ Jesus, uh, our great God and King. You know that you give to church planting, but I want you to know today that not only do you give to church planting financially, but so too do you walk with us on our church planting journey. Uh, so many times in this journey, uh, Pastor Ron and Pastor uh, Chan have walked with me through difficulties and helped me um, navigate um, this, this, this ministry. And so I'm grateful for you for more than just your money, but thank you for your money too. Oh, you were supposed to say amen right there. Let me give you a quick disclaimer before we get into today's sermon. Uh, the sermon I'm getting ready to preach to you is, uh, is more like a reflection than a uh, full exegetical working of the text because I've been swamped lately. I've been, I've, been, I've been busy. I mean, listen, completing all the coursework and graduating from Lancaster Bible College and Capital Seminary took a lot of work. <laughs> I had to make sure I got that out there. Thank you. Because of you, the seventh grade dropout was able to accomplish and to earn a graduate degree. You don't know how grateful I am to you for that. I got to join with Pastor Tommy Kiedis and uh, Jimmy Purchase and uh, Doug Logan and so many others over there at Lancaster in May. And it was an incredible uh, time uh, there. Uh, this past week, I got to speak to your new pastor, Pastor David Cassidy. What a joy and blessing. I'm excited for our future family. Now listen, on a more serious note, the sermon that I'm speaking on today deals with a topic that I fought for and lost friends, family, finances, and platforms over throughout the last decade or so. So I'm ready to preach this sermon but you should know that the formulation of this sermon has taken a hit because over the last couple of weeks I've been on site hugging, praying for, and counseling the families affected um, in the Surfside uh, tragedy. I've gotten a chance to spend time with them at the community center and at the uh, hotel uh, with the, the actual families uh, that have lost loved ones and who have loved ones still underneath the rubble. Uh, I would ask you to pray for Elaine, whose daughter uh, is trapped under the rubble. It's her best friend, she says. And a couple of her other children no longer speak to her, but this is her best friend and the only one who continues to speak to her, and now she's under the rubble. Pray for the Velasquez family who've lost loved ones. Pray for Abigail, who's having a terribly hard time dealing with uh, the loss of her close friends. It's been a tough couple of weeks as we've done a ministry uh, there in Miami in the city of Hollywood. It's been uh, a terribly busy time as I've developed an incredible team in Hollywood for a significantly growing church in the midst of a pandemic. Seeing people come to faith, be baptized. This year we've had about 10 baptisms since the beginning of the year alone and we're so grateful to God for what he's doing. 
So consider this my ministry report and my justification in case this sermon, I, in case I bombed this sermon, all right? I've just been busy, y'all, busy. Do me a favor, bow your heads, join me in a word of prayer as we ask God to bless the hearing and the reading of his word. Father in heaven, we love you and we give you praise. God, we're so grateful that with all the voices that we hear, there is one that we can trust every time. God, your word is true. Your word gives life. You speak a word and healing comes. You spoke a word and you created. God, we believe that in this moment you can speak one word, change and transform us completely. So God, we pray, come down now by your spirit. Reveal Christ to us, change us, and transform us. In his name we pray, amen. Hear the word of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 in this series, Beyond Our Imagination. The word of the Lord says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I got three ideas or reflections on this passage that I want to share with you today. The first idea I want to talk to you about is this. I want to talk to you about unity as imaginary. Unity as imaginary. I thought about titling this uh, piece of my reflection as unity as a figment of our imagination because of how impossible true unity actually is. Here's what you need to know about the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians deal with the Christian's calling. The first three chapters deal with uh, who we are in Christ Jesus. It speaks about how we are blessed. It speaks about how we are redeemed. It speaks about how we have been saved in the person of Christ. In other words, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians speak about who we are. Chapters 4 through 6 of the book of Ephesians deals with our conduct. 
It moves from who we are because of what Christ has done to who we should now be and what we should now do in light of what he has already done. Speaks to how we should walk out the reality of the gospel in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2 starts off with the apostle going through how, 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 how radically God has saved sinners. How we had nothing to contribute to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And how God in Christ has redeemed and rescued us. Speaks of how we were uh, in our sins dead there. And Christ has resurrected us by his spirit. As we get to verse number 11, there's a big therefore. Goes from speaking about what Christ has done. And then Paul says, now therefore. You should know that a therefore is always connected to a preceding thought. In this case, the therefore is connected uh, to us Gentiles, us fallen, sinful, and unfit Gentiles being redeemed and being made to be a part of God's family. It speaks of us being fit and redeemed and joined into God's family that was at one time primarily Jewish. So Paul is speaking about, about how we who are different from those who were in have been brought in by the blood of the cross. And it's almost as if Paul is saying here in verses 11 through 22 that, 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 that you're now redeemed, but don't forget where you come from. Paul says, dare and he begins to work out for us a remembrance. I remember back in the day, in my hood at least, uh, when somebody would leave and go graduate or get a job or, you know, just do school or something like that. Something incredible, right? And they start acting a little bit different. Acting a little, a little, a little better than us. We would call them back to reality. We pull them back to reality with a simple a statement. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that you're from the same block as me. Don't forget that you're from the same humble beginnings as us. Don't forget where you come from. I believe that's what Paul the Apostle was saying to the Gentiles here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's telling them, hey, I, I know you've been redeemed. I know you've been saved. I know you've brought, been brought into the family of God now. But don't you dare for a moment forget that at one time, that wasn't the case. You haven't always been saved. You haven't always been fit. You've been brought in by sheer grace. See, family, the truth is, again, we ain't always been saved. No matter who you are in this room today, the truth of the matter is that you were once far off and disconnected from God and his people. And you and I, we've been brought near and made to be a part of God's family, not because we qualify and not even because of family lineage, but instead because of Christ Jesus' work for us on the cross, Paul is taking time to remind us of who we were because we often forget. They say that Luther uh, once said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. Now, 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 if you missed this 
uh, th this point, you'll miss the central idea of this passage. Paul is speaking to the Gentile church by way of the community of faith in Ephesus, and he's saying to them, don't get it twisted. He, he's saying, you didn't fit, you were an outsider, you didn't qualify for inheritance. You were spiritually bankrupt, you were morally bankrupt, and you were ethically bankrupt. Now, 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 Paul is most certainly uh, speaking about different types of people being unfit. But, but I need you to know that he's not only talking about different kinds of people, Gentiles, being unfit. But rather, he's also speaking about us being unfit, not just in, a, in, in light of Jews, but he's also speaking of us being unfit, referring to Christ Jesus. Uh, I mean, listen, forget about not fitting in with each other, y'all. We didn't fit in with God is what the gospel teaches us. Don't miss that. Paul is not just saying, hey, in light of Jewish people, you all don't fit. He's saying in light of Christ Jesus, who is the true and greater Israel, you do not make the mark. You don't hit the mark. You don't reach the standard. You can forget about not fitting in with each other. We didn't fit in with God. Beloved, unity with God for we sinners is simply a figment of imagination outside of the gospel. Unity with God is simply something that could never be accomplished had God not intervened on our behalf. Unity with each other. Something completely out of the question. It's, it's not realistic outside the gospel because of our sin. But because of the sin we commit in thought, word, and deed, because of our actions and our inactions, because of the choices we make that are opposed to God and that are selfish in nature, you and I are unfit for unity with God, the text tells us. See, no one people group has been more fit than another because every people group is made up of individuals who have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. So Paul reminds us here in this text that all we Gentiles were unfit outsiders and unqualified for the promises of God. And yet God in his grace has thrown the, the, the game off and redeemed us into his family, a family that we didn't fit in and that we didn't qualify to be in, but one that he has gone to great lengths to join us into. I need you to know that he didn't do that. He hasn't joined us in simply by, by, by changing the order of things. But that instead he has brought us in by slaying his innocent son. In that way, family, unity is terribly costly. In that way, unity is terribly 
costly. This is the second idea that I want to talk with you about today as we reflect on verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Family, don't miss this. This unimaginable price paid by God to bring us salvation and to unify us into his sacred family was costly. God has not united us to his family simply with wishful thinking. But instead, God has unified us into his family through the blood of his son. In Christ, God has made a gang of different people who were all spiritually bankrupt and unqualified to be one beautiful family through the sacrifice of the only innocent and qualified son. Let me see if I can make this plain for you today. Jesus was and remains the only fit and qualified son for the family of God. Because he never sinned, because he always honored God, because he always did the will of the Father, whereas we, well, we constantly sin. We constantly dishonor God. We constantly choose our way above his ways. We don't fit, but he fits. He fits perfectly because he is innocent. And beloved, what Paul tells us here in this text is that Jesus, who is the only fit and qualifying son, he forsook himself so that we who did not fit and so that we who do not qualify might be accepted into the family of God. What grace, what unimaginable grace that the innocent would give his life for the guilty. That he who fit would forsake himself so that we who do not fit might be accepted. Beloved, it's, it, it shouldn't be true, but it is. Jesus has paid a terrible cost so that we who were hopeless might be saved. In case you didn't catch that, that's verses 13 through 16. Don't miss this, y'all. The price of purchase was the innocent for the guilty. The, the, the price of our inclusion into the family of God was that the one and only person who fits in the family of God would be forsaken so that we who were uh, far off might be drawn near. You need to understand today that we weren't almost cut off. You need to understand today that, that, that we weren't uh, like, like almost estranged or almost strangers. Beloved, the Bible says that we were totally and completely strangers, totally and completely cut off, totally and completely hopeless without God. That's what the text tells us. But God cut Jesus off so that we might be brought in. That is beyond our imagination. I'm not trying to be deep today. This is basic gospel theology. This is the plain good news of the gospel. We were separated, but in Christ we've been brought near by the blood. We Gentiles, far off, strangers and aliens, but brought in near. 
You need to understand that the inclusion of different types of people, both the Gentiles and Jews, into the family of God, this isn't an afterthought of the gospel. This isn't an afterthought of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross by his blood. This idea of unity isn't an afterthought or secondary to the good news of the gospel. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 tells us that he was slain in order to bring about a kingdom of priests unto God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is why he died, to make us part of his family again. It's not secondary. This is the truth of the gospel. According to Paul... This is what Christ has done in the shedding of his blood. Beloved, this unity that you and I share, this unity that you and I share, even with all of his difference, it hasn't been brought about by wishful thinking. It's been terribly costly. It cost the blood of Christ, our Savior. The third thing I want to speak to you on a little bit today is this idea of the rejection of cheap unity and a realization and recovery of a more comprehensive and costly unity. It's a little long, so I'm going to read that to you again. I want to talk to you about rejection of cheap unity and the realization and recovery of a more comprehensive and costly unity. Family, the unimaginable grace that we're speaking about today is powerful. And always shows itself on the concrete. Beloved, the same blood by which we are saved is the same blood by which we are changed. The blood that saves us changes us. And we, we believe in a gospel that doesn't make salvation possible, but rather a gospel that makes salvation actual. Let me help you out. Here we don't preach that on the cross Jesus made salvation possible for people. That, that, that if they would just, uh, you know, somehow uh, grab a hold of, of his blood that they might be saved. No, that's not what we preach here. What we preach here is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were cut off and far from God. And God intervened at the right time even while we were still dead in our sins. While we were running away from him, he ran after us, grabbed a hold of us, died on the cross in our place so that we would actually be saved. Not a possible salvation, but an actual salvation. And what I need you to know today is that in the same way this gospel has saved us, so too does it change us every time, not some of the time. Oh, I don't know if you're with me today. This gospel saves and changes, not some of the time, but every time. When this gospel is applied... This gospel sanctifies. Y'all know what sanctification is, right? In the Old Testament, we would see sanctification of items. In other words, when you think of the temple carrying on, the temple, they had a chair, they had some bread and all this kind of stuff, and they were regular items, right? But they were sanctified, set apart and made sacred for the purposes of God. Beloved, in the same way, by the blood of Jesus, you and I have been sanctified and set apart. This gospel we're preaching, it's good on the concrete every single time. I want you to lean in here. I want to pastor you just for a couple of minutes. 
Family, if I stand up here and tell you that I've been gripped by the gospel and the one who has once for all accomplished it and eternally maintains it, but there's no evidence of that in my life, I am lying. Hear me. If we claim to be gripped by this gospel and the one who has accomplished it in its entirety, and not only accomplished it, but maintains it, but then there is no evidence of this gospel in our lives, we lie. The way this portion of the text works itself out is from indicatives to imperatives. From what God in Christ has historically done to what we should be living and experiencing in light of that. See, everything Christ does shows itself in real time. And from what he's done, we now live and do. We've been united, Paul tells us, to Christ. We've been redeemed in Christ. We've been drawn near and brought together in Christ. Therefore, the rest of the text tells us we should be growing into a holy temple of the Lord together. Don't miss it. We've been brought near. Not kind of, perfectly and holy. We've been united in Christ. He has torn down the wall of hostility that separated us as two men and brought us in and has made us to become the one new man. He's done that. Therefore now, you and I are to be growing into a holy temple of the Lord together. Can I be honest with you for a second now? The state of the church, our tables and social media networks seem to suggest a totally different idea. The state of our churches, the divided state of our churches, the divided state of our tables, and even social media network points to a different idea, not one that says that we are in this together, growing together, wholly and completely, but more like we prefer a separate but equal kind of gospel. I want you to know today that the gospel of Christ Jesus is a gospel that levels the playing field. It makes all of us to be one, totally and completely. Unfortunately, our lives look like more of the idea of separate but equal. Like, 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 like we want to maintain separation enough so that we can maintain our lifestyles and comforts. But we want to be equal enough to not be considered racist. Separate enough so that I can worship how I like to worship and not be bothered by people yelling and shouting. Equal enough to where I can be pacified in my conscience and feel like, well, listen, but I love all type of people. Separate enough to where uh, you don't get in my way and your culture doesn't infringe upon mine, but equal enough to where I can say, oh, I love all kinds of people. Beloved, that's easy and cheap unity. Anyone can do that. Like, like we can all be nice to each other at work and apathetic to each other when we get home. I don't know if you're hearing me. 
We, we can all do that. Anybody can do that as a matter of fact. That's what we've even seen in our nation, isn't it? In 1896, there's a case called the Plessy versus Ferguson case, some of you might be aware of. In that case, the verdict uh, of separate but equal was, was basically brought into our Constitution as a justification of segregation. It said, this is after slavery, and this, this, this basically said that, that, listen, everybody has to be equal now, but listen, um, people of color, get your own trains, right? Go to your own water fountains, all that kind of stuff. Well, you don't, what, what we sometimes miss is that through that, the Jim Crow laws were established and fortified, and from that we saw the lynching of countless people of color and their allies. It was progress, but it was cheap progress. There was no longer slavery, so there was process in that progress in that now we're separate but equal, but it was cheap. America even noticed that separate but equal doesn't work. So some years later in 1954, we get the Brown versus Board of Education case. And in the Brown versus Board of Education case, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, he says that the doctrine of separate but equal has no place in public school. And through that, the Supreme Court called segregation unconstitutional. Family, America decided that it was unsatisfactory to live separate but equal lives 67 years ago. America decided that that progress wasn't enough, that it was, it was too cheap, it was too easy. They decided that based on some flimsy individuals trying their best but couldn't quite get it. All I'm trying to say to you today is, family, God bless America. God bless America for the progress we made. God bless America for the changes we've made in our laws and legislation. But family, if a fallible America got this right all those years ago, how much more should the church of Jesus Christ, the liberator, get it right today? We have a better, more, more, more lasting motivation. America had to work through lit litigation and all type of laws to attain some form of unity. But family, verses 15 through 16 tells us that Jesus brings us real and more lasting unity by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Watch this. Thereby killing the hostility. Family, there's a more comprehensive and costly unity that you and I can experience. There's a more comprehensive and costly unity that we can enjoy. The cross has killed the hostility between God and us. The cross has killed the hostility between us and each other. There is no more superiority. There is no more hierarchy. There is no more us versus them. In Christ, God has killed hostility and brought about peace and true 
unity. For many of us, this just isn't what we've been living. At best, we've been living separate but equal kind of life. We know that when we look at the demographics of our community alongside the demographic of our churches, we know that when we look at the demographics of our leadership teams alongside the demographics of our communities, we know that when we look at the demographics of the people we agree with and listen to alongside the demographics of our communities, there's hostility at every turn, though Christ has come proclaiming peace. Beloved, by the costly sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the spirit that raised him, we've been made one family with the Father. We're no longer strangers, but share a house built on Jesus, which we are to steward. That when the master returns, he should find it beautifully adorned by the diverse artifacts of our diverse communities. Christian unity can and should be uh, deeper, more sacrificial, more complete, more lasting, and more generous than worldly unity. You and I have not only been invited into that, but you and I have been brought into that. It's time that we enjoy it. It is time that we engage it. It's time that we realize this more costly and comprehensive unity. We don't just have to be distant cousins. We have been made to be brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, Jews and Gentiles alike, rich and poor alike, black, brown, and white alike. We haven't been given an opportunity to be unified. We have been made one. Beloved, let's live like that. Let's enjoy the goodness of that. I want to eat some of your green bean casserole alongside some arroz con andules. This is not just an invitation, family. This is our, or the reality that we should be living. Here's my call to you today. Believe the entirety of the gospel. Embrace the one who has accomplished and maintained it, and maintains it. Live like he's your master and motivation, and no matter how far off you've been, I want you to know today that at the cross, you've been or can be brought near. Receive the grace of God, and not too far that you can't be welcome. It's no sin you've committed that excludes you. It's no color of pigmentation of your skin that keeps you out. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. In Christ, let me say it this way, and I'm out of here. Christ, the only qualified son, the only fit and innocent son, forsook himself so that you and I might be accepted. Father in heaven, we pray. Take these words, sow them into our heart, cause them to bear fruit. Same blood by which you've saved us, we ask that you would change us with. In Christ's great name, we pray, believing that you will make these things to be true. Amen.